What up, everybody? It's Cuff of the Vision Lab Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Farmers Insurance, the Robert Garcia Agency. If you're looking for the best insurance and customer service, make sure you pick up the phone and dial 972-645-1844. Whether it's home, life, or business insurance, Robert and his staff are the best at protecting you and your family. Once again, that's Farmers Insurance, the Robert Garcia Agency. Agency. The phone number, 972-645-1844. And the website is farmersagent.com forward slash R Garcia. And don't forget to mention the Vision Lab podcast. And I said, you know, I break the mold. Every black stereotype you cannot place on me except what I eat. Because <laughs> Moet's uh, Nectar Imperial, that sweet stuff was made for me. Um, fried chicken and biscuits and watermelon all the time. And I love sweet <laughs> snacks. And so after we were snowed in, I literally, we had had a photo shoot and I had taken all of my snacks from here, my cookies, my candy, my chips. And I said, let me take it to the, to the photo shoot for everybody. And I hadn't re-upped. So by day three, I was literally looking out the window trying to figure out, well, if I put on snow boots, would I make it to the store? <laughs> it got rough. It got rough. So by day five, I'm like, look, we packing up this truck and we are out of here. We will figure out how to make it down the hill. Welcome back to another great episode of the Vision Lab podcast in partnership with Nexon Creative. I'm your host, Ryan Cuffey, alongside with my co-host, Mr. Ryan Mosley. The Vision Lab is the official growth mindset podcast for all visionaries worldwide, showing mad love to the cigar community. It's here in the lab where we uncover people's visions and dreams and how those dreams actually come into reality. Yo, I am super excited today. We have got the queen of whiskey, um, Mo, what's going on? Who's in the lab? Cuff, today's guest is a native of Pasadena, California. She is an accomplished investor, an author, a historian. She is the founder of the Nearest Green Foundation. And most importantly, she is a CEO and co-founder of Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey. Please welcome a true visionary, the beautiful Fawn Weaver, to the Vision Lab podcast. Thank you for having Good me, morning. guys. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm doing great. Amen. I have zero complaints, but even on, on the worst day, you're going to find me with zero complaints. So I'm doing well. Right. I love it. Cuff, let's take care of everybody who takes care of us. Amen. Uh, obviously, Edwina Brown, the family of Blowing Smoke Cigar Lounge. What uh, up, baby? EB, thank you for all your support. Uh, Visionaries, the uh, the Instagram Instagram handle is at Blowing Smoke, and that's Blowing, just I-N. Uh, Crystal and Tim at Class A Vodka, thank you guys so much. The slogan is Class in Every Glass. Visionaries, listeners, if you have not had a chance to get your hands on it yet, we promise we stand by it for a reason. Yes. Uh, the entire squad at Dallas Leaf, the army of Dallas Leaf. What's going on, Ron? Whether it's cigars, Ron, my favorite is the Hamilton. I know I talked to you a couple weeks ago. Everyone talks about the Bishop, but I love the Hamilton personally. Um, if it's not cigars, whether it's a charitable event, entertainment, whatever you need, get with Dallas Leaf. They'll make sure you're taken care of. Uh, we appreciate all you guys' support. We can't thank you guys enough. So let's jump on into it. Um, how does a young African-American girl from Pasadena, California, find her way into the spirit world? Yeah, I don't think it really mattered what color I was or where I was from. Uh, I, I, I actually chased a, a story and the story led to Lynchburg, Tennessee. The story was about the first known African-American master distiller. And I chased that story more so as a book and a movie. Now, of course, I wouldn't have come down and, and chased this story if I didn't already have all the trademarks in every category. So it's not to say that I hadn't uh, trademarked everything related to whiskey and everything else, shirts, hats, whatever, but that is because I learned when I put out my first book, New York Times bestselling book, and it was wildly popular and it grew this club that was well over a million. And then I tried to trademark it. It did not work and it got rejected. And so after that, I learned if I am going to go after any particular project, the very first thing I have to do is number one, make sure the online real estate is available. So all the websites and handles, social media handles, all that stuff. And then make sure that the trademarks are available. Once that once I have all of that, 
then I'll decide whether or not I, I pursue something. So my husband laughs that I, I literally have probably 600 plus URLs. And he's like, surely you don't plan on doing something with all of those. I'm like, I, I don't think so, but I don't know which one I'm going to use. <laughs> so we got to just hold on to them because I secured all that for a reason. That's right. There's a story with when the internet first came out with the Cowboys. Somebody purchased DallasCowboys.com. I'm sure they got paid. And the Cowboys, Jerry Jones couldn't get it. So he had to pay oh, yeah. a, uh, a nice chunk of change yeah, admit, to, to get yep. that. Absolutely. I've got a few of those. Yeah. So <laughs> to, 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 I guess, expound on Cuss' first question, right? Like, you know, you've got a resume that, you know, there are not very, very many people who are accomplished in the space that you occupy as, as what you've done. What ultimately, and we're going to talk about the actual product, right? But what ultimately made you want to get involved when it came to the whiskey? Because that's yeah. it's not a space that, that, that women occupy. Like, you are the whiskey queen. Yeah. yeah, again, I don't look at it. I don't look at it as color. I don't look at it as gender. For me, it was very, very simple. Once we began diving into the story of Nearest Green, it was very clear that a movie wasn't going to do it. A book wasn't going to do it. Yeah, those are those are great things. But the next generation, or at least two generations from now, will absolutely not be talking about the book. And a ten, two years from now, nobody will be talking about the movie especially the way that content is coming out these days. So the question became, if Nearest Green, uh, who, as you know, taught a young Jack Daniel how to make whiskey, how, and became his first master distiller, if when Jack was alive, he made sure everybody knew who Nearest Green was and his significance. When Jack's descendants ran the distillery, they made sure everybody knew Nearest and Nearest's family and their significance in the business. And so the story, was very well known and talked about until 1978, when the last of Jack's descendants to run the distillery, who at that point sat on the board, when Reger died by 79, when one of Nearest's descendants went back to do a tour with some friends, because she would always take friends there so they could hear about her ancestor. And when she went back in 79, the story had been scrubbed. And so the question was, how can someone who the, the namesake of, of the most famous whiskey in the world made sure that everybody around him continued to credit Nearest Green, but somehow the story still got lost. So the question was, how do we make sure that doesn't happen again after we've done all of this work, after we've spent all of this money, how do we make sure five generations from now that someone's not having to come back and do what we're doing right now? And it was very clear. The only way that happens is his name had to be on a bottle and it couldn't just be a bottle of whiskey. It had to be a superior spirit inside that bottle. That was the only way. And the reason why we still to this day talk about Johnny Walker and Jim Beam and Jack Daniel is because everywhere you go, you look on a shelf and they are right there in the middle of you, in the middle of it. And so it became very clear that the only way we were going to make sure that the story of the first known African-American master distiller was not only put in the history books today, but that people were still continuing to raise a glass to him 300, 200 years from now, was to make sure we put some superior juice into a bottle and that we pass that on to the next generation. And I love that, that you brought up the, the, the spirit itself. For those that have not had the pleasure of tasting uh, Uncle Nearest, yeah. um, let's quickly go into what the ingredients, and I'm not asking for the special sauce, right? But what, what kind of flavors, what kind of palate should they expect yeah. to, uh, to lever? And, and by the way, we're pretty transparent. You can ask for any special sauce. We're, we're really clear about what we, what we do. But in terms of what is the flavor, what's the, the taste profile, you, I think, are sipping on 1884 today, right? That's what you're yep. having tonight? All right. So 1884, the thing that you have to look on this one is, can you see this signature yep. on the back? Yeah, you have the bottle. So that's the signature of our master blender. That's Victoria Edie Butler. She is fifth generation, nearest green descendant. And that is her blend, meaning everything that is in her, that particular bottle is what she likes. And so you're going to get sweeter notes in the 1884. You're not going to get a lot of oak. You're not going to get any tannins at all because for her, when she's tasting, she's specifically tasting a barrel for vanilla, butterscotch, caramel, those types of, of notes and, and profile 
oatmeal raisin cookies, like which I we were talking about earlier. I ate for breakfast. Those are all the flavors. Oh, you gotta love that. Hold on. Sorry about that. Uh, did not turn off my phone, but you have <laughs> you you have all of those sweeter notes because that's Victoria's palate. Quite frankly, it's my palate as well. And that one comes in at 93 proof. It is incredibly smooth. That nose is unbelievably caramel. Uh, mm. I was at, at brunch yesterday down in Atlanta at breakfast at Barney's, which is fantastic. And I had them, I have this cocktail that I like to make on Sunday mornings called Grown Folk Mimosa. And okay. it, it's, an, yeah, it's an elevated mimosa. So you basically, you take a, a half of an ounce of Uncle Nears 1884, a half of an ounce of Grand Marnier, and then you put in between one and two ounces of orange juice, depending on you know how boozy you want it. And then you top the rest with, it's about four ounces of champagne to get it to the top. And we're, when they brought all the ingredients to the table, because I literally, I told the server, I was like, okay, write this down. And he was trying to keep it in his head. And he got to the end, he was like, I got it, I got it. He's like, so St. Germain, I was like, see, bring me the ingredients. <laughs> St. <laughs> Germain and Grand Marnier are not the same. And so he literally brought all the ingredients and brought me a jigger. And for the four people that were sitting there, I sat there and I made all these grown folk mimosas. They were, of course, amazing. And But I literally had to pick up the two glasses because the color of the 1884 and the Grand Marnier were very, very similar in color. And when I nosed the 1884, I was actually pretty blown away because that particular blend of Victoria's, it was so heavy on the caramel, it took me a second to figure out which one was the Grand Marnier. And the only way I knew which one was the Grand Marnier is because then I was looking for orange, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but she loves that sweeter palette. It goes down incredibly smooth for all of my cocktails with the exception of maybe two or three, I use 1884 in all of my cocktails uh, because it's just, it's so smooth, but it holds up really, really well in any mixed drink. Well, in honor of you digging into the nuts and bolts of the uh, of the actual product, I am opening the bottle of the 1884, the 93 proof. All right, uh, I will do the same. Absolutely. Yes. A toast to Uncle Nearest, a toast to Fawn Weaver, a Thank toast to you. Jessica and your team for making this happen and being patient and everybody working together to make this happen. <laughs> Jess Cheers. is perfect. Cheers to Uncle Nearest. So good. I'm always, whenever I, I see, and, and this isn't to say that, you know, other people's stuff isn't great. That's not to say that, but there, there are some out there that aren't that awesome. And then when you, when you see them sipping on it, you, you kind of look at them and go, oh man, that was hard for them to do, <laughs> but it's really easy for me That's to sip on this. Super easy. I want to yeah. go back to, uh, you mentioned Edie, uh, Victoria Edie Butler. Yeah. How has she been uh, in, your, in your life as it relates to, you know, uh, Uncle Nearest and the spirit? Yeah. So, so I, the reason why I don't go by the queen of whiskey is because I call her Queen V. And, and she is, she is absolutely Queen V to me. I've got like the whole entire company calling her Queen V. So she's gotten used to it. But Victoria, she is the sibling of the three descendants of Nearest that still work at Jack Daniel. And when I first came down and began doing research, I spent so much time with her siblings, but I never met her because she had this high profile DOJ job up in Nashville and, and she was never really around. And we, I don't, I think you mentioned earlier that I was the founder of the Nearest Green Foundation. Well, one of the things that the Nearest Green Foundation does is we pay for the full tuition and, and whatever they need for their college for all nearest green descendants. So whether they're getting a bachelor's or a master's or one that we just put through uh, her bachelor's and her master's, and I'm trying to get her to go on and to do her PhD, but we, we cut those checks every single semester. And Victoria, I met her because the first of our graduates was graduating from University of, of Tennessee with honors. And I was there at the graduation and so was Victoria because it's her niece. And we wow. connected and, and, we, and we hit it off immediately. 
And she was like, you know, my brothers and sisters have been telling me all about you, but won't nobody bring you around so that I could meet you. And I said, I am certain that you just aren't around because I'm with them all the time. And so that's where we, we met. But I just loved her personality. She was super feisty, which I love me some feisty women. <laughs> and she just kind of was super focused. She knew who she was. And, and so we started talking and I had always wanted this to really pass through a green descendant. And I had talked to the young people in it, trying to figure out who could we raise up as a master distiller. And they were like, mm -mm, that job ain't glamorous. Y'all make it look glamorous. That job is <laughs> not sexy at all. And so I couldn't get any of the young generation of Neris's descendants to have any interest in the distillery business at all. And so I was talking to Victoria about it and she was able to take early retirement coming up. And she says, well, I'm gonna do early retirement. And if something comes up that you think it makes sense for me, then let me know. And literally the, I think I learned a couple of weeks before she was taking early retirement that that's what she was doing. And I literally said, I don't care what you do. I want this company to run through his lineage. So you tell me what you're qualified to do and that's your job. And so she came in as our director of administration and then she was overseeing the foundation and, and that aspect of it. And at one point when we were looking at what's the next bottle, so 1856 was out and it was, what's the next bottle? What do we wanna do next? And I had this idea of having all of Neris's descendants one by one to choose their own blend, right? To go in with our tasters and to really hone a really special blend. So the idea was it would start with Victoria and then go on to, we had already chosen the next, the next descendants and each one would have their own bottle with their signature on the back. And, and we were super excited about the project. Then Victoria did the first blend and it was so out of this world and immediately started racking up gold awards and double gold awards. And it sold out so fast that we asked her to do the second blend. And the second blend was better than the first. And after that, we said, we're, we're not actually gonna do what we were planning to do. Victoria, this blend is yours. And so she continued doing 1884. And I wanna say by maybe the third blend that she did, I looked at her and I said, darling, whiskey is in your blood because I could not do what you, I mean, she literally has to go through and do 30 tastings in a very short period of time. And she knew exactly this one's in, this one's out, this one's in, this one's out. Like there was no wavering. There was no back and forth. She was very clear about what she wanted in her blend. And so she's definitely proven that she is fantastic at what she does and her blends are winning every award there is. Well, she definitely got an award from us, even though it doesn't exist. It is <laughs> I'll let her know. I'll let her know. Um, and I want to clear something up because I'm sure all of our visionaries that are watching this, by the way, if you're checking us out on YouTube and you like the content that you've heard thus far, go ahead and hit that like button and the subscribe button above. But um, Font, can you clarify and so that people know that you don't have a direct lineage relationship with any of the, the Green family? I do not, and and but just don't tell the family that because they keep trying to in, in, put me in the family tree, and I'm oh, the one who did the family out. tree. I did the family tree. I brought together all five branches. Many of them did not know each other. So the the way that it worked here in Tennessee, prohibition began ten years before federal, and it was the last state to come out, and it came out county by county. So Tennessee was the first in the last out. So you're looking at more than 30 years that that business was shut down. Well, their business was in whiskey. It was Jack Daniels. And so Jack, uh, Jack's nephew who took over the distillery right before, a few years before Jack passed away and then prohibition basically hit right before Jack passed. But the nephew relocated Jack Daniel distillery to St. Louis just in time to move all the product up there. And it operated there for 10 years during prohibition in Tennessee. And so you had a arm of, of Nearest's family that was in St. Louis and had no idea that there was ever a Jack Daniel distillery there, no clue. Wow. And then you had another branch that went, that left here and went to Indiana. You had a branch that's in Houston. And then you had the two main branches here in Tullahoma and in Nashville. And in, with each of them, 
God bless them with every single one of them. They're like, Fawn, you are going to be the one to tell this story. And so they would all give me their photo albums to allow me to document all of this properly and to be able to, to do what we needed to do to restore them. And so even though the branches didn't know one another, they all had the same person in all of their photo albums. And it was a, a man by the name of Charles Green, and he was the one family member that went off to war. And so he was, every single time he would take photos in his serviceman outfit, he would send it out to all of the family members. And so it wasn't until I was able to show them all that they all had the same person in all of their family albums that they actually believed they were related. Because one branch at one point was like, Fawn, I don't know about you bringing all these other relatives up in here. <laughs> but it was really important to me that I had the blessing of every elder in this family, that the matriarchs and the patriarchs of every single branch of Neris's family fully supported what I was doing. And so that was, that was really important to me, but it was really funny initially when I began bringing that family together and they're like, hey, 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 we are the descendants of Neris Green. Who are these people? Uh, but now they all, you know, they're all cousins. And, and so they, they refer to me as cousin Fawn or the elders refer to me as Nisi. And they just, they just refuse to believe that at some point I am not going to discover a document that puts me on that family tree. Well, I would say that you definitely have put enough sweat equity in to be, to be part of that line. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of sweat, a lot of sweat, but good. It's good sweat, right? So you, so you have, there is such a thing as good sweat. And this I think is, is definitely good sweat. Absolutely. And, and you touched on this earlier, Fawn. I'm curious to know why was this so important to you? You know, here's the funny thing. I, I really, you know, I wish I had this beautiful uh, artsy answer for that. Cause I get the question all the time, right? And my answer is so boring, but it is what it is. I think that there are certain things in life we go about doing that we choose to do, that we see something that we like, that we're drawn to, that we, and we choose to do it. And I legitimately think that there are certain things in life, main callings that choose you. And when you see the way that this has gone down, and I tell people all the time, I'm not confused about it. You're looking at a woman, a black woman who has built the, independently that has built the fastest growing independent whiskey brand in US history, fastest growing black spirit brand of all time as an independent, like that doesn't happen. And, and so I, I know that people like to give me credit, but I'm not crazy enough to take the credit. I, I absolutely believe that I was called to do it. And knowing as much time as I've spent on studying nearest and studying Jack, as crazy as it sounds, I'm a big believer in the afterlife. I do not believe the things that have happened have been coincidental. I mean, if you look on, on the front of this, this bottle, right, this house. So this house is the house that, that Jack Daniel grew up in. That And Jack grew up in that house. That is where Nearest Green was the master distiller on that 313-acre property. That distillery was Jack Daniel Distillery, distillery number seven. Then it later became distillery number 16, but it was always marketed under number seven. And as far as we know, there was never another distiller other than Nearest Green for distillery number seven. Well, we show up, I'm in the library with my husband doing research on this very story. The eldest descendant of Jack Daniel, eldest living descendant right now of Jack Daniel walks through the library. And after a conversation of 10 minutes says, I wanna help you pulls out her cell phone numbers and starts giving me names and numbers of Nearest Green's descendants because she grew up with all of them. And then before she left, now mind you, she wasn't there that long. She was a bit like a whirlwind. And before she left, she said, hey, you know that book you read that brought you here, which was the book Jack Daniel Legacy where Nearest and his boys are mentioned more times than Jack's own family. And she said, you know that book that brought you here? She said, almost all that stuff happened on the Dan Call Farm. I said, yeah. And she said, you realize that's for sale. You should buy it. Immediately. Right. right. Like that wow. just, that shit don't just happen, right? So then an hour later, I get a call from her cousin. Now, mind you, we're in Jack's lineage, right? I get a call from her cousin who says, you met my cousin at the library. She said, you want to go see the Dan Call Farm. I'm a realtor. I can take you. So she takes us the next day. 
we immediately, my husband and I immediately put an offer in on this property. And to make sure that we didn't lose it, we were like, we bought, we are buying this all cash. We didn't have all cash, <laughs> but we were like, we'll work that part out. We will take this all cash. And we, we closed on it uh, pretty quickly. And, or at least we got the approval from the owners pretty quickly. And then they needed some time because they were quite a bit older to move out. But bottom line is, is we buy the house. We do it through Jack's descendant. And then I began bringing my research, these thousands and thousands of documents and artifacts all into the house. I turn it into essentially a research room, like the house where Jack grew up. And I begin doing that. The, the descendant, Sherry, she comes on a regular basis, checks in, sees how my research is going. I tell her, you know, what I learned about Nearest's family, what I learned about her family. And one day she says, you know, I know this is a book and a movie and yada, yada, but if you ever decide to honor Nearest with a bottle, I'll come out of retirement to make sure you get it right. Right, wow. the realtor. So how about the realtor was when she left the family business of Jack Daniel Distillery, she had been there 31 years and she was their head of whiskey operations when she left. She is our head of whiskey operations. She was my first employee for this. And so, or at least she came in as a consultant initially, but bottom line is, is that kind of stuff doesn't just happen. You can't pay me to believe somebody in heaven doesn't have puppet strings. So then my question is always, who is it? Is it Nearest and Jack together? Is it Nearest by himself? Is it Jack by himself? And everything I've learned about Nearest is he was so successful and so confident, but so incredibly humble. His children were exactly the same way. It's, it's very interesting because if you look at photos of them, you'd have no idea that they were the children of a formerly enslaved man or a grandchild. But then funny thing is when you look at Jack's family, you would think they were because they're like always in overalls and all the rest of this stuff where Nearest's family was dressed to the nines, every single photo, they're looking straight at the camera, their chest is back, their head is held high. It's very clear uh, who they are. And when you begin digging into them and their wealth and their real estate, that it becomes, it begins to paint this picture that we're usually not told about our ancestors and the things that we were able to achieve in, in that period of time. And so I begin looking at this and looking at the personalities. And I literally concluded that as, as much as we're doing to cement Nears Green, I don't think he gives a damn. Like everything about his personality and his kids' personality, I just don't think they care who I do think would care is Jack. And so when I look at this, I take it so seriously because I'm like, somebody in heaven chose me. It's either Nearest, it's either Jack. I'm putting my money on Jack, but either way, I am working incredibly hard in this generation because I know I've got to pass this on to somebody else and I don't know who they've chosen next. And so I've got to run this leg of the race and, and do it with excellence until that baton gets passed. So it's funny you're talking about the work and, and what you guys have achieved. I mean, ultimately, you're, you're, you're CEO. Like when something comes up, the buck stops with you. How yeah, do you absolutely. Get, how do you get an organization of X amount of people that you got working underneath you now? How do you get everybody to pull in the same direction for such a very defined and distinct goal? Like there, you guys are going down one road. There are no detours. Yeah. But to get five people in the room to agree on one thing, let alone an entire organization, everyone's rowing in the same direction. How do you do that? 100% because we spend so much time on setting the culture of our company from day one. So the, the very first vision that I set forth for our company with our first employees was our job is to raise up one legend without harming the legacy of another. And so we came into this looking at it and saying, we have to move forward and how we tell this story with love, honor and respect. Nearest Green's legacy of excellence must be in every single package. We have to, we know that we're building this for 200 years from now. So our marketing campaigns can't be faddish. They can't have somebody with a bunch of diamonds and all the rest of that stuff, because that's only applicable to this generation, that stuff isn't even gonna be, you know, people aren't gonna care about that a hundred years from now. And so the question becomes, how do you bring everyone together? And it's really simple. I mean, it, it, it may seem hard for most, but for us, it was actually very easy because we, we all had a vision that was bigger than whiskey. 
We all had a goal that was beyond our current generation. So it's really hard to get to, to be selfish in how you do things when the CEO is the lowest paid full-time employee and that everything that she is doing is to pass it on to the next generation, not to cash out. The way that people begin looking at it is very collectively versus people looking at it and going, what do I get out of it? And so because of that, we have this cohesiveness. We don't have turnover. I mean, for a company that's grown like us from one employee to I think we're at 60 something employees, that number is about to balloon when we reopen the distillery in a few months. And But to go from that to that, and we really, I mean, I think we've had two people move on and they, if you were to talk to them, they sell Uncle Nearest like they were still with us. And so they haven't really moved on. And so we bring everybody into the Uncle Nearest family, but it's this collective mission to build this up so big and to cement this legacy in such a way that the next generation can't mess it up. The generation after that can't mess it up because when you look at legacy brands, one of the things that you will see is no matter how poorly the generations after that first one did, if that first one built it right, nobody's been able to screw it up. If you look at Trump, and this is not politics because I am, when it comes to my company, I'm apolitical. I have my opinions, but my company is, it is absolutely bipartisan. But when you look at Trump, just as a business example, he has bankrupted his father's company, what, four or five times? And he still can't screw it up. And so that's how we're building this, is to make sure that no matter what anybody in the next generation does, it just continues to grow and the name becomes more and more powerful and more well-known and recognized every generation to follow this one. You know, you'd mentioned earlier opening, reopening the distillery and, and we all know that uh, necessity is the creator of innovation. Yeah. Uh, last year, 2020, was, it was tough for a lot of people. I'm curious, as you guys have been rolling in the same direction, going down this path, how did the pandemic affect you or how is it currently affecting you, you know, that we're still dealing with it? Yeah, so we are in our 10th quarter in a row that we will see triple digit gains. So that means over 100% year over year growth from the year before. So this is the 10th. We celebrated the ninth quarter in a row last quarter. This we are in the middle of our 10th quarter in a row and I have no doubts we'll be triple digit again. And so for us, all the pandemic did was cause us to really hone in. And because so many of the smaller brands, the craft brands, the first thing for whatever reason, and everybody makes their own decisions, but the first thing they cut were their people. And one of the first things that a lot of the distributors cut were their people. And so at the time that happened, we had 13 open sales positions. And so we had two choices, either I could just hold or furlough some folks, or I could double down. And so instead I did a raise and, and I mean, and literally in a matter of two weeks, raised $13 million and said, we're doubling down. And we hired all 13 of those positions with top tier people that were in the industry because everybody else was shedding. And so you have all of those people that are so appreciative of being given this amazing landing opportunity that they hit the ground running, our team hit the ground running. So we were all in quarantine for two months, but while a lot of people in quarantine were kind of stopped working, right? And it was like started drinking and woe was me and all the rest of that. As soon as it happened, I called a meeting and it was a Zoom meeting, of course, but it was an all company meeting. I said, we're doubling down. We are going to be working our normal schedule. We're gonna just do it from home. If you need to take a break because there's a lot going on in your world, you do that, you take care of you. But as a company, we are doubling down. And so we did this competition called Come Out, Coming Out, Coming Out Swinging. And every single team member had to craft a marketing plan specifically for their market and then upload it into our internal intranet. And then all of the team members would download every plan and then vote on it. And people won money prizes. And, and then the best ideas got implemented. And so, and then all of the other people that say, for instance, if you're in Atlanta and someone in Detroit had this incredible idea or in DC or in Charlotte, then you retooled your marketing plan specifically for your market to pull all of the best ideas from all of the other team members that could work in your market. 
And so when we came out the gate after two months of quarantine, I mean, our numbers went into the red bad during those two months. But when we came out in that month, we made up and then some for everything that we lost in the quarantine because we were prepared. We spent two full months honing our plan. And when we came on the other side of it, we executed with absolute precision and excellence. And so for us, we, we have not seen uh, anything but growth. So we've heard about the company and ultimately the Vision Lab, or our, our goal is to have our guests give true nuggets of wisdom and breadcrumbs to whatever entrepreneurial spirit, whatever it is they're trying to pursue. Yeah. So I'm curious, when Paul Weaver wakes up in the morning, mm-hmm. what's the first thing you think about? Oh, I get my ass out of bed. It's five o'clock. So <laughs> that's the first thing I think about is it's five o'clock and I spend the first three hours of my morning in, well, the first two hours in what, what is Savers. So it's a book that I, I give to my whole team. I see you nodding your head. So that it's a book by, have you read it? Absolutely. Did my savers this morning. Yes. So my whole my whole company is on board with that. So when you join Uncle Nearest, you get a bunch of swag, a backpack. And in that backpack, you get both uh, Miracle Mornings and the Miracle Equation. Right. And so the savers for me, my whole family, we're accountability partners. So we have two places where it's holding accountable on our Facebook group page for our team. There's a separate one for all those that are doing savers. And so it holds our team members accountable. But me personally, the one I'm on is my family text chain. And every morning when we finish our savers, we literally go in there and say savers done. And then we all give each other a high five. So we start off with our silence, our affirmations, our visualizations. I do yoga. And so I do a 60 minute yoga with a uh, instructor virtually and then reading and scribing. So that journaling and so that's my five to seven. And then from seven to eight, I ha- we have what my husband and I call a coffee hour, Weaver coffee hour. We've been doing it for over a decade. And that seven to eight is just he and I. We talk for the first portion of it. It's usually just whatever we didn't talk about for dinner because we also six to seven o'clock at night because we're going to run into my dinner time in a second. Six to seven o'clock at night is all about dinner with my with my husband and that is our block time and then we do the same for a coffee in the morning and because he and I are involved in each other's business dealings then we generally will spend the first 45 minutes just him and I having coffee and just looking out and looking at the beauty and the wonder and thanking God for all of our amazing blessings and thanking each other and then the last 15 minutes it's usually whatever work things we need to get done together uh, that day, whatever things are hot on the on the fire, that's what we'll talk about in that last fifteen minutes. So yeah, when I wake up, it's like get up. That that's the first thing I think is no. there is no snooze that don't no. exist. Get up. Let's go. Let's go time. Yep. Um, and I absolutely love that. And I'm doing savers. There's another book that I'm reading right now called um, The G Code by Ryan Stuman. I'll shoot that to you. Uh, yeah. But it's real similar uh, in the approach. But, you know, immediately you, you talk about the five things that you're most grateful for. You get your exercise in, you know, and then he talks about groupings. In other words, the, t- the type of people that you hang around. Right. And that's actually where I wanted to go with my next question. Yeah. Um, we've talked a lot about Uncle Nearest and, and how Fawn runs the organization internally, but externally where you get your drive, your motivation from. I know that it, it comes internally, but you also bounce ideas off. You mentioned your husband. But how important is it for you to have people that are like, like-minded in your sphere of influence or in your circle of influence? So I don't have anybody in my circle of influence that isn't like-minded, nobody. I don't have time. So every single person, I'm like that person who, if you want to have, if you want to like have someone to listen, like if, if, if you're complaining and things are down and you want to have that friend that will just listen to you, I ain't her. That is not me. I am the person where if you have a problem and you want it solved, that's the part I can help you with. But if you want to just complain and have somebody to listen to, that's not my circle. So my circle is very action oriented. We are very much so problem solvers, troubleshooters. I have two mastermind groups. So if you, I mean, you, I know are familiar with that concept of mastermind groups, right? And so I have two. 
go ahead and share it for the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is a book that is by Napoleon Hill that's still, I mean, a bestseller. It has been for, I don't know what, a hundred years now. And it's, it's called Think and Grow Rich. And the, he interviewed 500 of the top entrepreneurs of that time. So you're talking about uh, JP Morgan, who people don't realize was a human being. Carnegie, Rockefeller, Ben Franklin, like these were all these people. And the one thing that Carnegie said is, is every bit of his wealth he and success, he attributed to his mastermind group. And then when I began looking at his mastermind group, I'm like, how are Carnegie and Rockefeller? And like this, like, how did they even end up in the same sphere? And so a mastermind group is really a group of people that come together and they're all about solutions. They're all about raising one another up. And it's, it's very confidential, meaning you never share outside of that circle what is shared inside that circle. And so I am a part of two mastermind groups. One is I'm, I am one of the very few Black women in the Young Presidents Organization, so YPO. The, the bar to get in is super high and not a lot of us are in it. But within YPO, there is a concept called forums. And those forums are essentially a mastermind group. You got a bunch of billionaires that sit around a table or decamillionaires or centimillionaires that basically sit around the table and they solve each other's problems. So we show up at forum and there is a normal process where you kind of list all three different things. And, and I can't go too much into it, but what I can say is that we go around the table and we all talk about one issue that's pressing. And then all of us at the table decide whose issue is the most pressing for that meeting. We meet once a month, literally. And whoever's issue is the most pressing, and it's usually a business issue, whoever's issue is a, the most important, we all defer to fix that person's problem. That's a mastermind group. And I have a second mastermind group with my executive team. And so we do something very, very, very similar. It's very rare for a day to go by where I'm not spending a lot of time either on the phone or texting or on Slack with my, with my mastermind that's within the company. If you could just give a single scintilla, right? Just a drop of wisdom to the next yeah. spawn weaver who's out yep. there. This is so funny because that's literally the question I was this is <laughs> Episode 98. So, yeah. you know, we, we, we know each other at this point. <laughs> if you could give one nugget of wisdom, or like I said, a, a scintilla, just a, you know, the size of a mustard seed, if you will, yeah. to the next Bond Weaver, what yeah. would you tell her? Fail harder. Fail harder. That is literally my mind. When you walk into the, 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 the advertising agency, that has run Nike's campaigns forever and ever, amen, Wyden and Kennedy. When you walk into their offices in Portland, there is a massive wall, a massive mural that says fail harder. And I literally live by that model because so many people are so afraid to fail that they really set up all these safety nets around them that cause them to give up before they succeed. So I believe without question that failure isn't failure unless you give up before you succeed. That means that, that what you look at as a failure was just a purposeful lesson that is meant to be carried forward and you keep pushing and you keep pushing until you succeed. But in order to do that, you can't be afraid to fail. Now that doesn't mean that I never have a fear of failure. I actually have a healthy fear of failure. Uh, but what I do is I use that healthy fear of failure to propel me. I use it as, as gas, as fuel. And, and so it means, it means that it's not that I don't have a fear of failure. I just do not allow that to dictate my actions at any given moment on any given day. And, and so that is just, that would be my one nugget, fail harder, set those goals so much bigger than what you can accomplish on your own, that you are requiring the universe to literally conspire to help you succeed. That's what I would recommend. I 1000% agree. And it's, I wish we had more time to go into it because there's, you know, certain layers to that onion that, that you have to peel back and understand, you know, not only philosophically, but, but mentally as well. Right. Yeah. So like, 
Uh, but I think it was a beautiful statement. I, I love the idea of failing forward, or failing harder. Failing harder, yes. Yeah. Well, Fawn, um, as we get ready to wind things down, we have reached a segment of the show and we call it Landing the Plane. Uh, our visionaries <laughs> know Landing the Plane is brought to you by the good folks at Grand Brulo Cognac. Thank you to Francisco, the owner. Thank you to Jameson and the Lovers team, everybody involved in this partnership. Francisco, we look forward to sitting down at the table with you very, very soon, sir, discuss some bigger ideas. Cup, uh, let me have your cup, sir, or your glass, rather. excuse me. And while we're doing this, uh, Fawn, let me ask you this. If Fawn Weaver were a book, yeah, what would be the title of your book? Zero Bullshit Allowed. Yes. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love Ooh. it. A toast to Fawn, good folks at Grand Brew, yeah. Uncle Nearest, all of it. This has been great. Cheers, y'all. All right. So we got two more questions for you, and then we know you got to get get going. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, real quickly, for those that don't know uh, about Uncle Nearest, how can they find you? How can they find Fawn Weaver? How can they find Uncle Nearest? How can they support you? Where can they buy your product? Yep. So we're in over 21,000 locations. We're not hard to find. If you plug in your zip code at unclenearest, N-E-A-R-E-S-T dot com, then it's likely that there's some place within a couple of miles of you that's going to have Uncle Nearest. And to reach me, at, so all of Uncle Nearest stuff is at Uncle Nearest, all of our handles on every medium. Mine on every all, medium. You got all the handles, we know. <laughs> all the handles, yes. And then all of my handles are either Fawn Weaver Straight or Fawn.Weaver, I think. But if you just look for the blue check mark, it's on all of my um, all of my ha handles. So I'm pretty easy. There's not another Fawn Weaver with a, a blue check mark. So I'm super easy to find. Um, one of the questions that we ask everybody on the show, and this will probably feed into your mastermind group. Um, it's you and you're at a round table and there are five other seats. You get to have five people at your table. Mm -hmm. The only caveat or stipulation, if you will, that you can't have, you know, whatever higher power you believe in at that table. Okay. That said, who are the five people at your table? Dead or alive. Dead or alive. Okay. At my table is my husband, Keith Weaver. No doubt about that. He, he, keeps, me, he keeps me balanced. Warren Buffett is at the table. Elon Musk is at the table. Rockefeller and Carnegie are at the table. Is that four? Yeah, that's five. That's uh, husband. your husband. Did I? Oh, I have oh. to bump. Then I have to bump somebody for Oprah. So we'll get this, man. <laughs> I've got to bump somebody for Oprah. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll let Oprah, Oprah, Oprah can be your, your additional plus one. All right. All right. I'm surprised you didn't go um, Uncle Nares himself. Well, but here's the thing. You said a mastermind group, right? Everything, well, it's your table. Yeah, but everything I know about Nearest, that would not have been the seat he would have cared to be at. I have such a massive amount of respect for Nearest. But if I am putting a table, and it's a boardroom table, as much as I love Nearest, as much as I, I respect Jack, I wouldn't have either one of them ironically at the table because the people who I want at the table are the people that are building right now or that their companies are still being built right now. Jack is Jack is in there, but quite frankly, when I look at Jack, I don't look, look at him necessarily as a person who I want at the board table. He's the person who I want to be on a front porch rocking chair and sipping Uncle Nearest, him and Nearest. I want them on the front porch with me sipping. But in terms of the boardroom, that's who's at the boardroom with me. Absolutely love it, love it. Okay, so in case you didn't know, uh, here in the lab, we do have a magical time machine. So what <laughs> advice would Fawn Weaver today, what advice would, would she be giving herself from five years ago? Five years ago, oh man, five years ago. Uh, do exactly what you did. I, I literally could not give myself any better advice than what I did, which was to follow my gut. And for, for me, as an independent, I don't have any venture capitalists. I don't have any PE money. That was really important to me. But that means I have a lot of individual investors. And those investors, when you're new, they have a lot of opinions. And I had to shut a lot of opinions down. And when you're talking to powerful, you know, centimillionaires and billionaires, 
that's not easy for a lot of people to do. But for me, I knew my mission. I knew my purpose. And so five years ago, I would have said exactly what I did, which is you go with your gut, no matter how much money or power another person has that's giving you advice, you follow your gut and they'll come along for the ride. And most certainly they have. Sound, sound advice there. Um, we're going to fast forward the clap. So forgive us. We're going to make you a little bit older. Okay. Okay. So five years from now, what is the older version of Fawn Weaver? What advice is she giving you today? Man, five years from now, I'm 50 and I am super excited to look really good at 50. (laughs) So, so, uh, that 50 year old is telling me to keep taking care of yourself. And, and, and I observe the Sabbath for me, it's, it's every week, uh, 24 hours off. And, and so I'm able to refresh, to renew. And I think five years from now, funny. I, I really think it's the same as five years ago is just really keep, I say no a lot more than I say yes. I'd say for every one yes, I give probably 99 no's. And so five years from now, I really hope that I am still that person that is strong enough to say no a whole lot more than I say yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. love it. To all of our visionaries, first and foremost, we want to say thank you so much to our guests today on the on the Vision Lab podcast, Ms. Fawn Weaver, CEO of Uncle Nearest. Again, if you like the content uh, today, make sure you hit that like button and subscribe to the Vision Lab podcast. And make sure you get a cop, uh, make sure you cop some Uncle Nearest at your nearest retailer. Um, again, thank you very much, Fawn. To all of our visionaries, uh, thank you for tuning in. Remember, each one of our guests are dropping nuggets of wisdom here on the Trail of Life. Ultimately, my friends, it's up to you to pick them up. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ryan Mosley. He is Ryan Cuffey. The voice you've been listening to and the beautiful face you've been uh, watching is Fawn Weaver of Uncle Nearest. Uh, This is episode 98, Visionaries. Uh, 100 is looking at us square in the face. We will see you guys next week on episode 99 of the Vision Lab podcast. Thank you guys again for your time and your support, and we'll see you next week. Blessings. Thank you.